0: Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. Protein powder doesn't have to be high calorie, filled with artificial ingredients, or hurt your stomach. Instead, it can be nourishing and a delicious snack. Just Ingredients protein powder is made with all whole foods and with five protein sources for easy digestion and an amazing rich taste. It's made with 100% grass-fed non-denatured whey, organic pea protein, organic pumpkin seed, organic chia seed, and collagen. We bring the highest quality protein to every batch. Just Ingredients is committed to its ingredients and only uses the highest quality natural ingredients that come from the earth. Just Ingredients Protein Powder is naturally sweetened and flavored with real foods and contains no artificial dyes, chemicals, or sugar alcohols. So if you want a delicious tasting, high protein, low calorie protein powder, you want to try Just Ingredients Protein Powder today. For 20% off your order, use code JIPodcast at justingredients.us. Once again, that's code JIPodcast at justingredients.us for 20% off your protein. Dr. Josh Redd is a chiropractic physician and author of the Amazon best selling book, The Truth About Low Thyroid. Dr. Redd owns seven functional medicine clinics in the Western United States called Red River Health and Wellness. They see anywhere from 200 to 300 patients a day. These patients come from across the country and around the world who are suffering from challenging inflammatory, autoimmune, endocrine, and neurological conditions. He has a master's in human nutrition. He is finishing up his thesis and master's in public health biology at Johns Hopkins. He is also in his last year of naturopathic medical school at National University of Health Sciences in Lombard, Illinois. He teaches thousands of healthcare practitioners about functional medicine and immunology, thyroid health, neurology, lab testing, and more. Dr. Red, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you back on our podcast. I'm so excited to ask you so many questions about inflammation because I know you have studied it and have dealt with thousands of patients with it. So welcome. And I have to say, I'm really impressed with how much schooling you're doing.
1: Hey, well, one, it's good to be here. I love it. And I love, uh, I loved our last podcast that we did together. I'm excited for this one. This is a fantastic topic. And and two, when it comes to my schooling, I have a condition that my wife and I just diagnosed me with. It's called the uh, FABACT. Have you heard of FABACT before?
0: <laughs> no, I'm sure it's something made up. Yeah.
1: No, no, it's real. It's it's uh, It's a condition called the fear of being a clinical dinosaur.
0: Oh, that's funny.
1: <laughs> but... I think over the last 16 years, I've completely sabotaged myself because I don't stop. I just keep going to school and I can't, can't stop. I don't know how to do that. But my intent, though, is to make sure that I'm getting the best up-to-date information for my patients and, and for Red River and to make sure I don't ever fall back into like old ways. Like in, in reality, though, jokes aside, if I treat a patient the exact same as I did two years ago, I fail. With all the new research and literature that's constantly coming in, I want to make sure that I'm staying up to date, want to make sure that I'm doing the best, most critical thing for my patient to improve and to feel better, right? And so, but yes, all the schooling has definitely helped with that.
0: (laughs) Well, that's amazing because I wish actually all doctors would stay on top of the new research because we're always finding out new things and there's always new research. So I love that you're up to date on all the new current things. Definitely. Okay, so let's just delve right into this topic. I want to talk inflammation today with my listeners, but let's start at the very basics. What exactly is inflammation?
1: Okay, so I'm going to preface it with this. I teach doctors across the country. One of my favorite things to do is to have them draw the immune system inflammatory pathways on a piece of paper prior to my weekend of teaching, and they can't do it. The hardest class I've ever taken at Johns Hopkins really I've ever taken my whole life and everyone will agree with this, is based off of this question. Over 100 students took the class. and I think 30 of us finished because it's a really complex pathophysiological process. But the best way to understand inflammation is that it's directly tied to the immune system. So our cells have hardwired things called pattern recognition receptors and a variety of other blockades. And if they are ever exposed to a virus, a bacteria, environmental irritants, even something as simple as like dead cells from injured tissue or anything harmful or foreign or anything that it just doesn't recognize, it will alert our immune system, which then ignites different inflammatory mediators or pathways to combat whatever it triggered. So when this is a short-term problem, this is fantastic because it keeps us out of danger and it keeps us healthy. But when this becomes consistently triggered over time, This can create a lot of problems for our physiology and for our brain. And so when these inflammatory pathways are constantly being triggered, that inflammation ends up destroying the tissue that it surrounds as well. And then that just causes more inflammation. And it's just vicious cycle of inflammation that's really hard to get on top of if you don't know how to calm it down. Right. Does that kind of make sense? It's a really complex thing, but I'll try to dumb it down from this point on.
0: Well, so you hear people say, oh, inflammation is good. Inflammation is bad. (laughs) And in reality, that is true. The acute, for the moment, can save us from different illnesses or injuries, help us heal from injuries. It's the chronic inflammation that we're talking about today that is not good for us.
1: Yes, yes. Acute inflammation is fantastic. But if we're consistently triggering that over and over again, it can lead to a lot of problems and create a lot of you know issues when it comes to our health.
0: So we're going to talk about some of those issues later on. But first of all, I want to know why is inflammation so trendy these days? Because you hear a lot about it, like, oh, that's due to inflammation or whatever. So why is it so trendy these days?
1: Yeah. So inflammation is single-handedly ruining more lives in the U.S. than anything we've ever seen, right? We have an inflammation crisis in this country. Inflammation is the key driver for almost all disease that we face. If we have a child that's suffering with autism and we have his parents who are suffering with autoimmunity, guess what one of the main mechanisms are that are driving it?
0: Inflammation.
1: Exactly. If we have someone with severe depression or fatigue or another person with Alzheimer's, guess what my main focal point will be when I try to treat it?
0: Inflammation.
1: Inflammation. You're exactly right. So whether it comes to hormonal dysfunction, infertility or diabetes or cardiovascular disease, inflammation is tied to so many of these problems
0: so you've talked a lot about different health issues that inflammation is a root cause to and i know depression since that's something i talk a lot about in mental health inflammation can actually be a root cause of that as well are there other health issues that you haven't mentioned that also are affected by inflammation
1: yeah so Cancer, heart disease, diabetes, autoimmune disease, Alzheimer's disease, we're finding out there's a, a inflammasome called the NLRP3, which is directly tied to inflammation, which is contributing to Alzheimer's even. ADHD, autism, neurobehavioral disorders, IBS, fibromyalgia, which is really a trash can diagnosis because most doctors don't really try to understand what's the mechanism driving the fibromyalgia, but inflammation is the key contributor to those types of symptoms as well. And in reality, the more that I think about it, the more I realize that all we are really doing to get the results we are is simply identifying the triggers for inflammation and then addressing them for that specific patient. It's not even about disease or a condition or a diagnosis. It's really about inflammation and their specific triggers from a dietary, lifestyle, physiological, neurological, and emotional standpoint. Everyone may have different triggers to an extent, but driving that inflammation down is really what's gonna help these individuals improve. So like, for example, I walked into my office and I had this 12 year old girl in there with neurofibromatosis type two. And this is a condition where you develop non-cancerous tumors in your brain and spinal canal. It is brutal. And her grandparents were just pleading, asking me to to give her a chance and to help her out. And I honestly didn't know what I could do for her, but I was like, you know what, let's just check your inflammatory markers and check for other physiological imbalances and see what we can do to just kind of help improve your quality of life. Not to really like cure the neurofibromatosis type two, because that's not what we're going to do, but to actually just see if there's anything that we can do to improve her quality of life. We checked her blood work. The blood work came back. She had tons of inflammatory markers that were high. She had a lot of different blood sugar imbalances and poor liver function, uh, a lot of different things for a 12-year-old that we usually don't see. And then, so we implemented this treatment plan to help with the anti-inflammatory diet, to calm down inflammation, and gave her some things to improve her overall physiology. And 30 days later, they traveled back to my office to see me in person, and I opened up the door and... She was in tears, and I thought, I thought, oh no, what did I, oh, what shoot. did I do? But as soon as she saw me, she jumped out of her chair and came and just gave me a big old bear hug, and just, just held me and and just cried on my tie all over it, <laughs> just saying over and over, thank you, thank you, thank you. This is the best I've ever felt my whole life. This is the best I've ever felt my wow. whole life. We see some really, really severe chronic diseases. By the time a patient comes to us, they've probably seen ten different specialists. And so we have some pretty strange things that people reach out to us for to help. So our office staff has to screen what comes in and and what doesn't, right? And my office staff came to me and just said, hey, Dr. Red, will you see a schizophrenic patient? This patient has a really poor quality of life. His mom's calling, really wanting you to help him. And I was like, I don't think we can really do anything for schizophrenia. And then like six months later, I'm studying about celiac disease and gluten tolerance. And I kept seeing over and over schizophrenia neurobehavioral disorders and gluten. And I keep seeing this mm-hmm. pop up. And so finally, I'm like, son of a, I got to call that patient back. Right. Right. And so I went to my office staff and I just said, Hey, can you find that patient? Remember six months ago, you asked about this. Can you find this patient and I'll call her back? And let her know. I'll see her son. And uh, so like three days of going through the call, look, they finally find this, this patient's mom. She brings him into her office we check for celiac disease. He has full-blown celiac disease. Wow. We check his inflammatory markers. They are a wreck. Wow. Uh, his overall physiology was a disaster. So he obviously had an incredible support system. We put him on an anti-inflammatory diet. We obviously had him avoid gluten like the plague. We did other things to help improve his physiology. And all of a sudden he just started to improve. Way better than I expected. And all we were doing was calming down this inflammatory response and helping the immune system just kind of relax. And then five years later, I got this thing in the mail where he had a full time job and it was an announcement for his wedding.
0: Wow, that's incredible!
1: Yeah, that's
0: amazing.
1: That's the biggest thing though, is like the more I do this and the more I think about it with all of our patients, we see, whether it's Hashimoto's little thyroid an autoimmune disease, neurofibromatosis, like this 12 year old girl or any other challenging chronic condition, all that we are really doing with any of our patients for the most part is addressing inflammation. That's it. We are identifying what is driving that specific patient's chronic inflammatory response And then we're working to improve it through diet, lifestyle nutrition, education, and counseling. And it's having a huge impact on a lot of people, but this is the time where like we live an inflammatory lifestyle in America, we are just full of inflammation and things that contribute to inflammation. And so identifying these things and changing our lifestyle completely. To minimize inflammation is going to have a dramatic impact on all of our lives.
0: That is an incredible story. I love that story. And it's true, what we eat and products we use, things like that play a big role in our health. So let's just skip right to that part and talk about what's affecting inflammation and things like that in the diet. Is that okay? Let's do it. Okay, so in our diet, it obviously plays a huge role because you've just told us how it does, but what are some of these foods that are causing this inflammation?
1: So you're right. Our diet is really, really poor, right? whether we know it or not, like we, as Americans, we think we're eating healthy, but we're, we're not in the U S most of our food, isn't real food anymore. It's ultra processed and filled with synthetic materials. If you look at the ingredients on the back and you don't know what the heck you're eating, it's likely going to cause inflammation. Right. And remember those pattern recognition receptors I talked about and the other immune blockades at the very first, right. Right. Those can be triggered if any of them recognize a foreign agent or think something's harmful. Our immune system isn't dumb. In fact, it has been genetically programmed for thousands of years. It easily recognizes if something is foreign or not. If we eat highly processed foods and foods that contain a lot of synthetic material, do we not think our immune system will eventually freak out and throw its arms up? Right?
0: Wow. That, of course it will. That's right? incredible. That. Yeah. I'm like mind blown right now because I hadn't thought about all those synthetics that I teach not to eat can be affecting the immune system. I always try to show how it affects other parts of the body. So keep going.
1: No, you're right though. We literally have these pattern recognition receptors. If our immune system suspects or, or sees anything that is foreign or appears to be harmful, it's going to freak out. So autoimmunity and chronic conditions have exploded over the last 30 years, they've completely exploded. And really it's because all of these ultra processed and synthetic foods causing this inflammatory crisis right now.
0: Okay, so you're talking about synthetics. What about these oils that we say are inflammatory oils like soybean oil, canola oil, things like that? They must play a role then too.
1: There's easy things that we know cause inflammation when it comes to a dietary standpoint. The oils, so soybean oil, canola oil, sunflower oil, cottonseed oil, those without question cause inflammation. We have enough research now to back that up. There's a preservative called TBHQ. Have you heard
0: of this? Oh, I have.
1: Yeah. This is in a ton of things and we now know it creates T-cell dysfunction and now studies are seeing it cause liver enlargement, neurotoxic effects, convulsions and paralysis in laboratory animals. So it's like, If we're getting high doses of these types of preservatives, again, our immune system is incredibly smart. It's brilliant. Of course, it's gonna freak out if that's all we're feeding it, right?
0: That's scary because that preservative is uh, marked by the FDA is generally recognized as safe. So that's a little interesting.
1: Yeah, that's unfortunately a whole nother podcast, right? (laughs) When we talk about, about that. But from a food standpoint, we're in a unique position to where we see so many individuals on a daily basis from all over the world. And so I can text some of our doctors and ask them, Hey, what are the most common foods that trigger inflammation? And they can text me back within 24 hours. And we can kind of have this, our own in-house study of what are the most common foods that people react to? Right? So if we were to eat a food and our immune system reacts to it, this causes an inflammatory response. And so I wanted to figure out what are the most common foods that do this? And we didn't find out that the number one culprit for inflammation was gluten. Hands down, no questions.
0: Doesn't surprise me.
1: Two, dairy products. Three, soy. Soy in America is really poor and really bad, by the way. If you get an organic soy, it will likely not cause many problems. But soy in America is awful, and that was the third four which is your favorite i know this is guess guess what your favorite that you just love avoiding right now
0: oh eggs eggs (laughs) (laughs) yes
1: we have ruined carlin's life
0: i should tell everybody that i'm doing the (laughs) anti-inflammatory diet and going off eggs was the hardest part of it
1: yes yeah so eggs was four number five was brewers and baker's yeast So think about that. Think about how many people are on gluten-free diets or think about a celiac patient or somebody that uh, has to avoid gluten, but then they go and they have this gluten-free bread that has yeast in it. And that in turn flares them up just like they're eating gluten. Wow.
0: That's interesting.
1: Six is rice, seven tomatoes, eight sesame, nine peanuts, 10 corn, 11 shellfish and 12 black pepper, which is interesting. And then there's obviously sugar, right? Like Mark Hyman always says, uh, we're getting pharmacological doses of sugar every day, right? That is, And that's true. Yeah, so much sugar. So true. And sugar is causing a ton of inflammatory problems. And it just is a huge creator. Anytime we have insulin surges or glucose spikes, this causes a huge inflammatory problem for us. And then there's artificial sweeteners. Most people don't realize, but a lot of our patients react to artificial sweeteners and those cause an inflammatory uh, response as well.
0: Yeah, those artificial sweeteners are in so many things. Um, Let's talk though about those 12 foods because when I first heard that, I was very overwhelmed. So do all 12 foods affect everybody or some affect more than others?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. So here's the thing, when we have our patients not all of them react to to the same foods, right? Everyone has their kind of like unique genetic makeup where they react to specific foods where a different patient might react to something else. When you look at this list of foods though, these are just the most common ones that we see, but we have tons of patients that still are able to eat dairy or eat eggs or have yeast and not have any reactions or have an inflammatory response. These are just the most common foods that we've seen the collective population of our patients react to. So I'm glad you brought that up because you might look at this and it might be extremely overwhelming, but for a lot of our patients, they don't have to avoid all these things too. Here's another thing. When you get the inflammation to calm down and the person's overall physiology is functioning better, Prior to that, they might have 15 food intolerances and now once things are functioning better and their quality of life is better and their absorption is better and their ability to digest food is better, they might only have like three food intolerances. So the sicker we see our patients, the more food intolerances they likely have. Those kind of go hand in hand there.
0: Oh, that makes sense. Okay. So there's a lot of talk out there about anti-inflammatory diets. So is an anti-inflammatory diet, a diet avoiding all of those 12 items that you said?
1: Unfortunately more. And so here's what I'll do. Over the last 11 years, almost every one of our patients who have seen red river has at least started on an anti-inflammatory diet. And our whole goal with this podcast is to help anyone who's listening. If we give so much advice during this podcast, and nobody wants to go to red river anymore because they feel so much better Then that's fantastic. Right. We can go get a job somewhere else. And Dr. <laughs> Stadler, Dr. Stadler is like a male version of Martha Stewart. So he won't have a problem getting a job, but, uh, <laughs> but really our whole goal is to give you so much insight and information that you can do this on your own and it can play a, a dramatic role in your health. So when it comes to an anti-inflammatory diet, here's what we do. Okay we encourage all of our patients to start reading all the nutrition labels and pay particular attention to the list of ingredients. Okay. A lot of things which are marketed to be healthy or all natural or fat-free or sugar-free or even organic end up causing a lot of inflammation for our patients. So we just want to make sure that that's clear. But as far as the foods to avoid when it comes to an anti-inflammatory diet, here's what we do. Obviously we have them avoid anything that they're allergic to. We have them avoid dairy. So that includes milk, cheese, yogurt, Butter, margarine, and shortening. We have them avoid eggs. We have them avoid gluten, obviously, which is like your wheats, oats, rye, and barley, anything like breads, pastas, cereals, tomatoes. We have them avoid dehydrated fruit. And this is kind of interesting too. Sometimes, like when we talk about the sugar thing, anytime we have an insulin spike or surge, that creates a lot of problems with our physiology. So, dehydrated fruit. And even too much fruit into like a smoothie or too much fruit at one time can actually flare up a patient really easily. So we want to make sure we're cautious with with our fruit intake. Rice, corn, and potatoes, we have them avoid. Alcohol. Alcohol is really, we all know this, but just to give you an idea, we have what's called an enteric nervous system, which aligns our whole intestinal tract. Just even a slight exposure of alcohol kills neurons instantaneously. Wow. We know alcohol is... Alcohol is not great, right? Coffee, black tea and soda, fruit juices. We have them avoid iodine. We see a lot of Hashimoto's patients. uh, And so we have them avoid iodine. Iodine is a cofactor and stimulator for what's called a TPO antibody, which is really the main culprit for a Hashimoto's patient. And so excess iodine will actually flare up their autoimmune response, but that's not necessarily for everyone. That's just for our Hashimoto's patients. We'll obviously have them avoid sugar, natural and artificial sweeteners, including agave. We'll have them avoid soy products. We'll have them avoid peanuts, beef, pork, shellfish, cold cuts, bacon, hot dogs, canned meats, and sausage. That's that's all they avoid.
0: When you first told me that, I about died. I was like, uh, what is there left to eat? But there actually is a lot to eat. After now doing it for, I've done it for like 25 days, there (laughs) is stuff to eat. So tell them some of the things they can eat.
1: Well, let's get back to that, too, because look, if you if I say that and you're like, what in the world am I supposed to eat? That's my exact point, though. You've kind of fallen into this ultra processed food trap. Right. Right. So here's what you can eat. And really, it's just it's just real food. You can have herbal teas and decaffeinated teas. You can have quinoa and buckwheat, moderate amounts of sweet potatoes. You can have fresh fruits and vegetables. You can have sea salt and spices. You can have beans, peas, fish, moderate amounts of chicken, turkey, and lamb, moderate amounts of olive oil, coconut oil, and flaxseed oil. You can have unsweetened unsweetened coconut milk, almond milk. You can have even raw nuts like cashews, almonds, macadamia nuts, sunflower seeds, pecans, walnuts. You can have a lot. Like there's a lot in the to-do list. And we like to have our patients eat every two and a half to three hours. The reason why too is because it helps blood sugar levels stay nice and stable. So just give me an idea. We have... All these chronically ill patients that come from all over the world to see us, we've never had any problems by having them eat every two and a half to three hours, keeping blood sugar levels stable. I love fasting, and a lot of our patients can fast and and we tell them to fast. But in this instant, because we don't know, fasting can screw up a ton of people. If somebody has adrenaline dysfunction or somebody ends up having a lot of severe ill inflammatory problems, and then they jump right into fasting it could wreck them. And so to be safe, initially we go this route and have them eat every two and a half to three hours.
0: And this diet that you're talking about and eating like this is only for like 30 days. It's not a forever program.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. If we have a really, really severe patient too, we might have them avoid nuts and seeds and nightshades as well. So prior to starting this, we'll have them do a food intolerance test so that we can see exactly what foods they're intolerant to. There'll be some patients that literally some of this healthy stuff up here becomes, you know, they're intolerant to, but then they start the anti-inflammatory diet for 30 days. And then we'll start adding foods back in slowly, but surely making sure that we do it in a systematic way that's going to minimize inflammation and minimize problems. Sometimes we'll add in foods and they'll have like a tremendous flare up and feel worse. And so between the food intolerance test and adding foods in slowly and strategically, that gives our patients really the best chance. And then, like I said, too, once their intestinal tract is functioning better, once their immune system is functioning better, once inflammation is down, they'll have a lot less food intolerances than they would have initially prior to starting with us.
0: That's incredible. And it's amazing that food plays such a huge role it comes down to eating whole nourishing foods, is what those foods that you can eat. So- That's
1: that's essentially it, right? They're eating whole foods, they're eating real foods, and that's pretty much all they're doing.
0: I love that, because I'm constantly trying to teach that it's the whole foods and the real foods that nourish our bodies, and we need to nourish and fuel our bodies on a daily basis. Are there actual foods that help lower the inflammation, Can you consider vegetables something that help lower the inflammation? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Vegetables, uh, specific fruits, right. Help lower inflammation. There's a, there's a variety of foods that help with that. Again, it's just about being specific to eating whole foods and then making sure that you're not reacting to a specific food, right? The way that our food is processed, the way that our fruit and veggies are processed, the way that they're grown in this country can cause someone to react to it, right? If the soil is contaminated, or if you know they're sprayed with certain pesticides, any one of those can cause a flare up. But what we've seen most is that if they eat these whole foods, your fruits, your vegetables, your beans, your peas, your nuts, your seeds, and then healthier forms of meat, we see that the bulk of our patients do incredible.
0: I love it. So I wanna ask you this then, because I get asked all the time about, like, what should I do for inflammation? So besides food, are there supplements that people could take that would help them lower their inflammation?
1: Yeah, we've done a lot of research on this too. So my first thing to specify is remember that there's no amount of supplements that can outrun a crappy diet, right? So making sure you're not trying to supplement your way out of just poor dietary habits, that's not going to happen, right? There might be one botanical that helps impact NF-kappa B or AP-1 or interleukin-6, And we might have a, another botanical that does a few mediators, but there's two things that literally impact 30 mediators, which is awesome. The first one and the top one that has the best impact when it comes to inflammation is turmeric. Mm -hmm. It has over 30 inflammatory mediators as a target. The second one is resveratrol. And then the third one is ginger. And then the fourth one is Boswellia. Those have the most impacts on these inflammatory mediators and those have the greatest outcome. And we've actually seen it clinically too with our patients where you'll have research and then you try to apply the research and it doesn't work. Like we don't see the improvements with the patient, but here we've done this over and over again, like without question, these are the best things to help lower inflammation, right? Here's another thing too. So there's drugs called biologics and it's kind of a new wave of of drugs. So drug companies and schools are researching this where we're able to target one specific inflammatory mediator like interleukin-6 with a drug. And if interleukin-6 is linked to rheumatoid arthritis, it's a little bit more specific way of treating, which is great. The problem with those though, is it's only addressing one inflammatory mediator, not an abundant amount like turmeric, resveratrol, ginger, and Boswellia. And so even still, Doing some of these things from a supplement standpoint or botanical standpoint will have a great outcome.
0: That's good to know. So, can anyone take these supplements? Are they safe enough for anyone to just go buy?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there'll be some things that you want to be cautious with, but yes, these supplements are really, really safe. My children take them. My kids are hardcore into gymnastics right now and they practice four hours a day and they're pretty intense. And so there's a lot of things that we'll do from an inflammatory standpoint to help calm down inflammation. If you exercise too much, you can actually have what's called exercise induced cytokines, which is an inflammatory response, which can lead to problems. And so that's one thing that I'm extra mindful, but these four, our kids take them all the time there's just things that you want to be cautious with because just taking turmeric might not be as effective as taking liposomal turmeric with black pepper added. Right. Right. And so the addition of black pepper literally in research shows that it's 2000 times more absorbable just I, by adding black pepper.
0: I did know that it's amazing.
1: Yeah. And so now if you remember though, black pepper was on that list is one of those things that increase, you know, intolerances, right. right? Or increase inflammation. So there'll be some patients that might not be able to tolerate it with black pepper in it. When it comes to resveratrol, you'll want to make sure that uh, it's also in a liposomal form. Uh, It just helps pass the stomach better and it helps the absorption better. Boswellia. You also uh, want to make sure that it has black pepper in it as well. That will really increase the absorption as well. Ginger is, is fantastic. It's probably one of the best botanicals that we work with. There's other things that you can inadvertently decrease inflammation too, though vitamin D increases regulatory T cells, which will inadvertently decrease inflammatory mediators. And so a lot of our patients will just give a higher dose of vitamin D and then we'll check their vitamin D levels really consistently. We want their vitamin D levels to be around 50 to 80. That's kind of the magic range. And so we'll give them a dose high enough to keep it within that range and that will help calm down inflammation. So for example, if somebody has a flare up let's say a inflammatory flare up and they feel worse, we'll actually give them a higher dose of vitamin D, check their, their D levels and their, um, their inflammatory levels and monitor that closely. And the increase in vitamin D and some of these botanicals above will end up decreasing their inflammatory response and help them recover much faster than what they would have before. Another great one, which is probably my favorite is glutathione, right? Glutathione is the body's master antioxidant. And now a lot of people know about this, but many people have low glutathione due to poor diets, excess sugars, environmental toxins, and chronic health conditions, and aging. So the older you are, the greater your demand for glutathione is too. So like with our elderly patients with neurological dysfunction and and inflammatory problems, we'll give them a lot bigger dose of glutathione because their demand is a lot higher too, right? These supplements are really our favorites that we've seen to help calm down inflammation and the research shows that. And so if a patient has some type of like an autoimmune flare or a patient's sick or a patient has increased inflammation, let's say after the holidays, right? One thing that they can do is go back to the anti-inflammatory diet, be as strict as possible and then increase their dosage of these supplements. And instead of recovering in, let's say, three months, they might recover in like two weeks. It will significantly impact their ability to recover and feel better faster.
0: Thank you for sharing all that about the supplements. I find it interesting about the vitamin D because in America, a lot of people are actually deficient in their vitamin D levels. So that's interesting then that that could be contributing to the inflammation as well. And glutathione, I feel like that's becoming more and more popular with covid people are knowing to supplement with it and so yeah
1: yeah with covid that's a that's a great point that you have glutathione we're finding that if you're depleted in glutathione your adverse effects to covid is going to be a lot worse as well even when it comes to COVID, for example, it's not the virus that's killing these people. What's happening is it's our immune system is overreacting with inflammation and the inflammation is the one ending up causing the problems. So it's like our immune system is trying to swat a fly with a sledgehammer instead of just like a normal swat, right? The over reaction of inflammation from COVID is really what's causing problems. And so with a lot of our patients with COVID long haul syndrome and, and all these other issues, Ironically, once they get on an anti-inflammatory diet and once they can help calm down these inflammatory mediators, they actually improve and do so much better. Like we'll have individuals that are on oxygen and they can't even walk upstairs without, uh, you know, feeling like they're going to die COVID for a lot of people has caused a lot of problems, but. In reality, the best way to help with these long haulers is we're calming down the inflammation as fast as we can. We're having them do the anti-inflammatory diet. We're giving them these supplements to help calm down these inflammatory mediators. And all of a sudden, their oxygen levels get so much better. They're able to actually do the things they used to do pre-COVID, right? In fact, just today, I had a patient who was dealing with COVID long haulers. Like, she was a mess, mess. But she just texted me and was like, Dr. Red, I was able to do my first massage and I lasted a whole hour because she's a massage therapist. But she was just thrilled that like she's now finally able to have the stamina to do a full hour massage, which she couldn't do the last 30 days. Right. And we did nothing different. We put her on an anti-inflammatory diet and we gave her these supplements we gave her some neurological exercises to do as well that have a huge impact on inflammation. And now she, you know, she's killing it, but this is really consistent with a lot of our patients who have been suffering with COVID long haul as well.
0: It makes sense that inflammation is a huge problem in America and that that would be also a issue with COVID makes complete sense. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about diet playing a role in inflammation. We've also talked about supplements playing a role what about lifestyle factors? Do certain lifestyle factors contribute to inflammation as well?
1: Yeah, there's there's a number of lifestyle factors. So one of the first things and probably the biggest component of this is going to be stress, right? Chronic stress will increase cortisol, which will in turn increase inflammation. And so making sure that we know how to manage stress, making sure that we live a life that isn't fully stressed, which you're, you know, I was just going to
0: say, you just mentioned exactly what happened to me. And I've told my listeners this, I got involved in too much stress and it messed up my inflammation and my cortisol levels were too high. So yeah, keep going.
1: Yeah. But just understanding what our threshold is when it comes to a stress standpoint is really important. And so making sure that we do all that we can to manage stress better, is going to help from an inflammatory perspective. There's a lot of things that you can do uh, to help minimize stress too. Like, so even though you're really stressed, if you can help your body combat that stress or react to that stress better, it's going to help minimize your inflammatory load too. One of those things will be like adaptogens are really beneficial. Uh, You could do deep breathing exercises, meditation, prayer. Uh, A lot of our trauma patients, right? We'll see a lot of patients that have past trauma that they need to work through and go through. That's really important. There's also certain things that you can do from a neurological standpoint that can be really beneficial. So just to give me an idea, when you're really stressed, it inhibits what's called the frontal cortex from firing properly. And this creates a lot of inflammatory issues. It causes problems with our intestinal tract. It causes all sorts of issues. And so we can inadvertently decrease inflammation through what's called an anti-inflammatory cholinergic pathway, which is a beautiful thing probably one of our best things that we do isn't even a supplement. It's actually these neurological exercises. And so if someone's extremely stressed out and they're in this like sympathetic dominance, which you've heard of, that's going to cause a lot of inflammation. And so there's certain things that we can do to help calm that down and to improve what's called the parasympathetic response. Do you want to know those exercises? I do. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Well, I know what so, they
0: are, but let's tell our listeners <laughs> what they are.
1: So my favorite one is doing an ice bath or a cold shower in the morning, even if it's just for two minutes. But the reason why is because it will stimulate this pathway, but it also stimulates what's called the cortisol awaken response, and it will help minimize stress long-term and it will help decrease inflammation. another great one is like a hyperbaric chamber. Hyperbaric chamber can really help improve this. There's also a machine called an alpha stim machine, which you clip on your ears And it stimulates the vagal nuclei, which helps stimulate this anti-inflammatory cholinergic pathway as well. Another funny one is just like gargling water aggressively for two to three minutes, a a few times a day. Uh, And like, I'll tell my patients, like you'll have patients practice and they just like are barely gargling. They're like, oh, it's not doing anything. I'm like, I know you got to gargle really aggressively to where like, if you filmed it, we all just would bust up laughing. Right. I had this uh, patient who was really sick. She had severe migraines. She had this exact problem. She was constantly stressed and she was really, really constipated. And she started our program and she texted me like the same day and said, Dr. Red, I, I haven't gone to the bathroom. I haven't had a bowel movement. Can I use a suppository? And I said, no, let's not do this suppository. Just gargle water aggressively for three minutes, four times over the, over the course of this night. And let me know how it goes. And then if you still haven't had a bowel movement, then, then let me know. And so she's like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll try that. So she gargles the water aggressively. After her second time, she texts me. She's like, Dr. Red, I had a bowel <laughs> on it. I'm like, "Ooh, gross. Uh, but we all kind of laugh. But again, but it sounds, getting...
0: it sounds crazy. So what is gargling the water doing?
1: Gargling water is stimulating the vagal nuclei, which is in our midbrain, which is the paracetamol part of our midbrain. And it's helping fire that which okay. will help minimize the sympathetic response from firing. And so we live in this like sympathetic, stressful, fight or flight life, right? And improving our parasympathetic response or our response that is like a resting and digesting response will significantly impact inflammation in our body. And so a lot of our uh, patients that we have, will have them do these neurological exercises and it has, uh, plays a big role in their health. Another one that they could do is stimulate the gag reflex. So like we'll have them get tongue blades and just stimulate the gag reflex. Now we want to make sure they're not eating. Right. But, um, if they stimulate the gag reflex, like 10 times, three times a day, that's another way to help calm this down.
0: Again, so it's we'll stimulating just... the vagal nerve.
1: Exactly. And it also stimulates what's called the anti-inflammatory cholinergic pathway as well. So if our patient's watching a show, maybe during the commercials, they just gag themselves, <laughs> right? <laughs> or if they're at a stoplight and, you know, they have some time at a stoplight, just gag yourself for a little bit, right? <laughs> uh, wherever you Don't want, actually throw you, up.
0: Just yeah, the gag.
1: Make sure that you don't don't eat prior to this. But that's, that's a really good one as well. The one that is uh, getting a lot of traction now is also coffee enemas. Coffee enemas, it will stimulate what's called the nicotinic receptors in the colon, which fire back up to the brain and help calm this pathway down as well, which is fantastic. But uh, those are some easy, common ones that you can do. Oftentimes, I'll have my patients do deep breathing exercises for five minutes, three times a day where they breathe in as deep as they can, and then they exhale as slow as they can, and they do that for five minutes. Uh, And that is really impactful as well.
0: That's good to know all those different little tricks. Um, I may have to try some of those.
1: Yes. Yes, for sure.
0: So, So tell me really quick about exercise and sleep. Do those two play a role in inflammation as well?
1: Yeah. So exercise can do a lot of great things for us when it comes to an inflammatory standpoint. Exercise helps release endorphins. It helps release neurotransmitters. It helps with dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin. It helps produce what's called the brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is BDNF, which is great to help decrease uh, brain inflammation. It helps stimulate new cells in the brain. Exercise can help with human growth factor and insulin-like growth factor. It helps with the circadian rhythm. So a lot of our patients will have them exercise right when they wake up, which will stimulate the cortisol awakening response. So regular exercise on a consistent basis can play a big role. One thing to be cautious of is that if somebody is really ill, too much exercise can actually flare them up. And so it will induce what's called exercise-induced cytokines. And this can be really problematic if we're not careful. So a patient has to be super intuitive to how they feel after the exercise. If they feel worse, they've overdone it. Once we can calm down the physiology and the overall inflammation, the patients can typically increase their intensity of their exercise and increase the length of their exercise.
0: Okay. So let's talk about sleep really quick. Sleep plays a role as well. If you don't get enough sleep that can contribute to inflammation as well.
1: Yes. uh, Sleep is really important. Getting into REM sleep. So one thing that we want to do is just being able to have a sleep routine. A lot of our individuals and patients are on all these electronics. They're constantly scrolling through your Instagram. uh, (laughs) Or yours. Late at night. (laughs) Or mine. uh, Late at night. And Then they try to go to bed and they can't go to bed because they have all that blue light causing neurological stimulation. And so doing all that we can to make sure that we're sleeping effectively and we're getting a good bedtime routine in so that we can get into REM sleep is going to be important. Some of our hardest patients and most challenging patients are the ones that work night shift. And the reason why is because it has to do with that cortisol circadian rhythm that I talked about before. If we don't have that in check and that's not functioning well, that's going to cause a huge amount of inflammation. And so making sure that we're doing all that we can to get this nice cortisol circadian rhythm throughout the day so that at night we sleep effectively is really important.
0: Okay. Let's actually talk about the cortisol. Well, cortisol not being in check because that is so many people probably in America so people listening to this podcast are probably like how do i even get any of this checked or tested how do i get the cortisol checked or is there blood work that i can look at so let's talk about the testing what is there that people can go ask their doctors for
1: and i love the way that you mentioned that by the way you're saying that question as if you are proactive in your health right
0: you have to to be these days
1: (laughs) you're right Back in the old days, like the old school model of treatment was you have this authoritarian doctor telling you what to do when it comes to your health, and that can't happen anymore. Like, let's not forget, we work for you guys, right? Our whole goal is to teach you and educate you and show you what to do and what not to do so that you can be the expert in in your own health. But as doctors now, our role is not to be an authoritarian doctor just demanding what you should do. That's that's unacceptable. Now we need to make sure that we're teaching, we're listening, we're understanding, and we're collaborating together with your insight as a patient to make the best decisions. So I love that you asked that question. Okay. Now, as far as what tests can you do? So when it comes to cortisol, really the best way to check cortisol is going to be through the saliva. And we'll typically check cortisol throughout the full day where you you spit in these little vials first thing in the morning, afternoon mid-afternoon and night. That's a great way to check for your cortisol circadian rhythm. Now, when it comes to inflammation in general, for the last 11 years, we've checked inflammatory markers with every single one of our patients. We literally track inflammation to gauge if our patient is improving or if it's not. So we're constantly checking these throughout our treatment plans. It's a really, really big, big part. When we can calm inflammation down, No matter what they're suffering with, 99% of the time, the patient feels better symptomatically and looks better from a biochemical perspective pertaining to their lab work. So the first thing and the most common thing we'll check for is what's called a C-reactive protein. Normal is zero to three. Anything above three means you have too much inflammation. Sometimes this will also assess for your cardiac risk as well. And so if we have a younger patient, we're not too worried about that. It can be secondary to inflammation, but this is a really important marker to check for. Even with our autoimmune patients, we'll check these markers really consistently and then implement the treatment plan and then retest. And we're just constantly checking. And if it goes up high, typically the patient feels worse. When we can get this inflammation down, the patient feels markedly better.
0: Is that a blood work test that most doctors will do or you have to ask for it?
1: Yeah, so these next eight are all blood work, and they're extremely easy. So easy to test for, and they're really inexpensive as well. C-reactive protein is the first one. The next one is homocysteine. Homocysteine is linked to dementia and Alzheimer's. When homocysteine levels are high, that causes a lot of inflammatory problems. Anytime we see homocysteine is about seven, We worry about what's called a methylation problem in the liver. We want to get this to improve as best we can. When we start to see it above 10, then we have a lot of different issues that can come from that. Homocysteine in your liver turns into cysteine. When it can't turn into cysteine properly, it gets backed up and stays homocysteine in the blood, which can actually be really inflammatory for a patient. The next one is ferritin. Now, ferritin is simply for iron, but ferritin is an acute phase reactant, which means under inflammation, ferritin can actually spike. And be really high, and so in premenopause we want uh, lab ranges to be around 10 to 122. Postmenopause we want lab ranges to be around 10 to 263. In men, we want them to be around 33 to 236. Anytime they're higher than this, though, we worry about this inflammatory response causing this acute phase reactant to increase. The next one is a really good one. It's called lactate dehydrogenase. This is a really good one when it comes to diagnosing blood sugar imbalances and problems, but when LDH is above 180, we worry about too much inflammation as well. If it's too high, you can run what's called an LD isoenzyme test, which identifies the exact tissue that's under stress, which is really cool. And so LDH, if it's above 180, we worry about inflammation. If it's high outside the laboratory range, run this cell enzyme test so you can see exactly which, which tissues under attack and which tissue is struggling the most. The next one is uric acid. In women, we want uric acid 3.2 to 5.5. In men, we want it 3.7 to 6. Uric acid is linked as well with these acute phase reactants. And it also is linked to causing hepatic inflammatory mo- molecules to increase, which causes a lot of problems as well. Another one, we don't really run this one much, but it's really easy to run, is the SED rate. This essentially detects alteration of blood proteins, which typically indicates inflammation. This is another one, it's called the HDL, which we've all heard of in a lipid panel. You want your HDL levels high, but HDL is an acute phase reactant as well, which means with too much inflammation, HDL will increase
0: Hmm.
1: and, and be really high. So anytime you see HDL above 85, That's actually more of a concern for an inflammatory response than anything else. So you might see like a doctor like, oh, your HDL levels are incredible. And we'll see the labs like, oh my gosh, they're terrible. You don't want them that high, right? Oh,
0: that's interesting.
1: The last one is interleukin-6. This is a really common inflammatory cytokine in chronic conditions and autoimmunity. So we love this, this inflammatory marker right here. But look, let's say you run five or six of those markers consistently And if if any of them are high, then you monitor those ones that are high to see how your treatment plan is doing. If it's not improving and your symptoms aren't improving, you're not getting any better. And don't settle for superficial diagnosis and a superficial treatment plan. Like let's get to the mechanism of why you feel bad. Let's monitor this closely. So not only do you feel better, but that your overall physiology and biochemistry looks better.
0: So question about these tests. So the average person... Do they need to feel certain symptoms to go to the doctor to ask for these tests? Inflammation is the root cause of so many things that anyone should just go in and ask for these inflammation tests to be done.
1: Anyone can get these done. Uh, we monitor these closely. Even like for me and my wife, we check these every six months, right? Just to make sure that we're we're doing good from a health standpoint. But there are symptoms of inflammation, and that will be fatigue, depression, brain fog, swelling. Water retention, you'll see patients that might gain and lose five pounds of weight within a day. Um, That's a problem. Congestion, skin issues, pain and joint pain. Uh, One thing to think about is that even past injuries and conditions worsen with inflammation. So wherever there's fire, if you add inflammation, it's like putting gas on a wildfire. It just gets way worse. So for example, I broke my back and shattered my tailbone a few years ago and was paralyzed for a few days and then was in bed for six weeks. Today, if I do things that stimulate inflammation, my back pain goes from a one out of a 10 to an eight out of 10. And it stays that way unless I calm it down. Even for me, just back pain from previously breaking it, I have to control my inflammation or I'm in a ton of pain.
0: That's interesting. Okay, talking about symptoms, I have a lot of followers who talk to me about their hormones being off. So can inflammation be the root cause of hormones being off Are hormones being off a symptom?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So it's different with men and women, but inflammation in men degenerates, what's called the lytic cells of the testes. Uh, and they're the things that produce testosterone. So you'll see lower testosterone in men with inflammation, inflammation also in men causes testosterone to convert into estrogen which then causes insulin resistance and then causes more inflammation. So it's a vicious cycle here. In females, inflammation will cause the theca cells of the ovaries to produce more testosterone, which will cause more inflammation and also cause insulin resistance. But then it ends up causing a whole lot of problems when it comes to infertility and miscarriages and hormonal hormone dysfunction as well. And then obviously inflammation, like we talked about cortisol, inflammation, also impacts the adrenal glands and leads them to produce cortisol, which causes them to steal away reproductive hormones on top of it. And so this can be a driving factor for a lot of problems when it comes to hormonal dysfunction. In fact, most of my patients who are on hormone replacement therapy, really what's going on is there's underlying inflammatory problems generating the hormonal dysfunction. So for example, guess what happens to... A male when he's on testosterone replacement therapy if he isn't addressing the inflammatory component
0: Um, it messes with the other hormones
1: that's right so testosterone will just convert right into estrogen and it ends up leading to a number of different problems
0: okay that's so interesting about men but let's go back to the adrenals because that actually is part of my problem with inflammation so if the adrenals produce too much cortisol because we're stressed and we've got this inflammation response going on, that it can s- steal, should we say, the reproductive yeah. hormones such as progesterone. So then women can end up with the excess of estrogen, correct?
1: You're right. So there's a number of different ways that this happens. So, but yes, it will steal away the reproductive hormones, which will lead to infertility and miscarriages, lead to low progesterone and excess estrogen. But again, inflammation causes problems with what's called phases one and two of biotransformation in the liver, which is basically the medical term for detoxification. Estrogen has to go through phase one and two of biotransformation. If it can't, if inflammation is impairing those phases, if it gets through phase one, it actually gets kicked out into the system in a more toxic form. And so you have this excess toxic estrogen floating around the body because it can't properly be filtered. And then we have all these hormonal reproductive issues because cortisol is really high and inflammation is high. And now we have this female in our office wondering what in the world is happening to me and why do I feel so poor and and why can nobody help me? Right?
0: Well, a lot of women struggle with terrible PMS and horrible Cramping and periods, and it could come down to their liver isn't detoxing properly, is not working, and they've got inflammation going on.
1: Yep. Two simple strategies, really, I should say three, are the main mechanism of hormonal dysfunction. One, because of the cortisol and stress response stealing away reproductive hormones, two, inflammation, and three, their liver not being able to clear estrogen effectively.
0: I think most people, most women need to work on those three things. We'd all feel a lot better. Okay, so it can affect our hormones so much, this inflammation. But I've been hearing a lot lately about brain inflammation. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, brain inflammation is a fascinating topic. And it's something that's getting a lot more attraction in the research and literature. But again, if you remember, inflammation is tied to the immune system. What happens here? is when somebody has brain inflammation for a variety of reasons, whether it's uh, food, whether it's trauma, whether it's a concussion, um, there's a number of other reasons that can cause inflammation in the brain. But what happens here is we have what's called microglial cells, which are immune cells that are like chihuahuas. They kind of go throughout our brain and clean up debris. When we end up having brain inflammation, it will excite these microglial cells and they'll become overactive and they'll actually destroy too much of the brain. And that causes a ton of problems. That causes a ton of issues for us. So just give me an idea, like the old model of treating depression was, oh, your neurotransmitters aren't functioning well. Let's just replace it. Mm -hmm. Now we're learning that that, that's not near as effective as as what it could be. The new model is addressing brain inflammation, which in turn enhances neurotransmitter function and overall brain health. So like some of the most common symptoms of brain inflammation is just chronic depression and fatigue those are associated with brain inflammation, right? Mm. Inflammation in the brain reduces all neurotransmitter function. And so you're going to have this slow synapsing. You're going to have lower neurotransmitters. You're going to have all sorts of different issues. And think about how that person's going to feel. That person's going to be depressed. That person's going to be unmotivated. That person might not perform well in school. That person might have a a ton of other problems. But another common thing is just Brain fog—that's a common symptom that we see with brain inflammation. So, one way to know is like if you're reading and you get fatigued, you could have brain inflammation. If you're listening to this podcast and you get fatigued, you could have brain inflammation, right? <laughs> or I could just be a really poor interviewer, but uh, <laughs>
0: that's not the brain, case.
1: If, if somebody's driving and it causes fatigue, that could be brain inflammation. And so, some—those are some of the things to look out for. The most disheartening thing for me, though, is in pediatric patients and in children, because we have literally set them up for failure. Like, think about this. One out of three or four individuals growing up now have neurobehavioral disorders and neurodevelopment delays. And the main mechanism driving it is inflammation. So here we have these kids. They eat cereal for breakfast. They go to school and they have their school lunch of chicken nuggets and milk. And then they come home for dinner and who knows what we feed them for dinner. And their brain is literally on fire. They have neurobehavioral problems. They act out. They just don't feel well. But we as parents expect them to behave or expect them to be a certain way but we're not giving them any of the tools to actually be healthy. Then they try to sleep and because of the brain inflammation, they don't ever get into that REM sleep. Their brain's on fire going a million miles an hour. Then they're on these electronics causing brain stimulation even more and they have no chance. Wow. If we can't improve brain inflammation by the age 25, any brain delay stays the same. It can't improve after that. And so we're seeing now incarceration rates, affairs, our ability to like make judgment calls, good judgment calls and decisions goes out the window if we can't help these kids. And unfortunately, this is the worst I've ever seen it. And so we as parents have to take control. We have to know exactly what we can and can't do for these kids and how our lifestyle and diet is impacting their brain because it's going to lead to severe depression, suicidal ideation. It's going to lead to so many problems in their lives and it's like this ticking time bomb that not really many people are even like paying attention to.
0: No, they're not paying attention to it. And those mental health issues are increasing like crazy and it comes down to the basics of inflammation. Inflammation is driving this and our food and our lifestyle and all those things are contributing to it. It's really sad.
1: It is, if you think about it, it is extremely sad. And now that I understand it at this level, I want to rip my hair out because some of these kids are literally set up to fail. They're being punished because of their behavioral issues, but they're, we're doing nothing to help them. And we're doing nothing to help calm down the inflammation. We're doing nothing to change their lifestyle. We're doing nothing to, to help with brain stimulation or any of that stuff. It's, it's really frustrating. We
0: could do a whole nother podcast on that on kids and inflammation. But for those listening, if you have children, the same things that we've talked about this whole hour long can apply to the children, feed them those whole nourishing foods to help them manage their stress. All those things that we've talked to, they can also have the same blood work done, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, and here's the thing. Our best patients that improve the fastest are children. Children are so resilient what takes us nine months for an adult, it might take a month for a child. If you actually start feeding them real foods and get the proper nutrients in their system and help calm down the inflammatory overload and help do things to stimulate certain parts of the brain, like one month, and they'll be a whole different child. One month, 100%, they'll be a whole different child. But we deal with so many children who have mental illness disorders and it's ruining their life. And the stem of it is inflammation. And we don't know how to take care of it as parents. And so just being informed and understanding this, even at a superficial level is important because even subtle changes can have such a dramatic impact for their life and who they become in 20, 30, 40 years from now.
0: Well, and I think that that's why so many people are getting on Instagram like you and other doctors trying to educate the masses of look, there's answers out there. There's solutions out there. But you've got to feed your children well. You've got to do these things, you know, that we know help. So thank you, Dr. Red, for being on the show today. Thank you for teaching about inflammation and what we can do to lower our inflammation. And I want to encourage you listeners to actually share this episode with others because it might be a problem that your family member is dealing with, a neighbor is dealing with, a relative. You never know who... Um, is dealing with inflammation that this could really help them. So thank you so much, Dr. Red, for being here today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's always a blast being with you.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus, get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram.